0: This is Squawk Pod, I'm CNBC producer, Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Bill Ackman is back, the investor launching history's largest SPAC, what that means and why he says it's better for everyone.
1: I think it's actually a much better process. It's much better for the issuer and it's much better for the shareholder because they get to make a thoughtful decision that's not rushed by the typical IPO process.
0: Ackman pocketed over $2 billion in the earliest days of the coronavirus pandemic in controversial and very public bets against the market.
1: Hell is coming, okay?
0: Four months and what seems like a lifetime later, he defends his positions, long and short, and explains the road to that hefty payout.
1: If you guys, instead of... Talking about the hell is coming part of my interview, which you guys ran all day and all night, look at the bullish message I made, which is, I'm buying stocks right now.
0: Plus, where the hedge fund billionaire is placing his bets today.
1: Restaurant companies, hotel companies, real estate development companies, you know, these are a bet that the country is going to recover. Let me be super clear. I'm very bullish on America.
0: It's Wednesday, July 22nd, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right after this. You're listening to Squawk Pod.
2: Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan and Melissa Lee this morning again. Becky is off today.
0: First up on today's podcast, the largest SPAC in history. What? SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company, often called a blank check company, because investors back these vehicles in an initial public offering without knowing when or how that capital will be deployed. The investors know only that the goal, whenever it may be achieved, is for the SPAC to acquire another company and then take that one public. For a long time, SPACs weren't super popular because they can be hard to explain. It can sound like a shady shell company waiting around for somebody to acquire and go public in what's basically a cheaper route than a traditional IPO listing. When the purchased company debuts, investors in the original SPAC have the chance to remain invested in the acquisition or to cash out. SPAC mergers have been behind some of 2020's hottest stocks. Nikola, DraftKings, Virgin Galactic, So today's SPAC listing on the New York Stock Exchange aims to raise $4 billion in outside capital, plus $1 to $3 billion from its sponsor, a well-known entity on Wall Street, Pershing Square, led by hedge funder and longtime CNBC guest Bill Ackman. This SPAC has a unique structure that encourages the initial blank check investors to remain long-term and keeps Pershing Square from receiving any compensation until the shareholders receive a 20% return. Another factor in all of this and part of why we on Squawk Pod chose to bring you this interview today, not just for the spectacular, is Bill Ackman himself, who is famous for short selling. Most recently, Ackman made headlines when he said, quote, hell is coming to CNBC on March 18th when the scope of an economic shutdown due to a pandemic was brand new.
1: Like There's a tsunami coming.
3: That day, the stock markets tanked. Day to behold, we ended the day down more than 1,300 points on the Dow. And most of us breathed a sigh of relief because we had seen the Dow down by as much as 2,300 points. And less than a week later, Ackman sold his bets against the
0: market and pocketed over $2 billion. Our own Becky Quick spoke to him on the phone just after that to figure out what had happened and why it looked like he'd shorted the market right before he announced on live TV that hell was on its way.
3: I guess in reading through it and talking to him about it a lot, what it was was not necessarily a profit on what was happening with that, as much as a way of covering the positions he was long. He's long in stocks like Lowe's, Hiltons, Agilent, Berkshire. He took the profits of what he was unwinding with that and put it back into the stocks that he liked at that point. All those stocks that I just mentioned. Um, and I guess if you're really thinking about what a hedge fund is, you are covering your hedges, you're, you're hedging your bets by. He didn't sell any of his longs, but he was hedging in case there was a big sell off that had come, and that's kind of what paid off in that position. So, again, a lot of controversy out there. I was one of the critics yesterday, but I will say in talking to him, I understand a lot better what had happened and, and what went on with all of that.
0: Many on Wall Street are still raising eyebrows at Ackman's lucrative about face. And this morning, he was ready to address them. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin kicking off today's extended interview with Bill Ackman.
2: Bill, it's great to have you on the program. want to talk about this SPAC I also want to talk to you about your investments and the markets and uh, your uh, comments uh, since this is the first time we've had a chance to talk to you since March back then and even some of the critique of that. But let's let's start with with this SPAC because it's the biggest one yet. And SPACs for such a very long time had a bad name. Uh, They were considered uh, compensation vehicles for sponsors, for for the managers, uh, oftentimes uh, at the expense of the investor. What do you think is changing right now and how is this to the degree that it is different?
1: Sure. So what we've done is we've taken what I think is a good idea. You know, the idea of raising a cash shell uh, to really uh, bypass the going public process, which is a risky, time-consuming process, I think is a good idea. The problem has been the terms for investors, really, as you describe. And what's new in our structure is it's the first back where we're taking no compensation. You no know, management fees, incentive fees, promotes, we're not buying cheap stock. Uh, there's literally no compensation to the sponsor. The sponsor in this case is not us personally either. It's the Pershing Square Funds. So we've set this up to create an investment opportunity for the Pershing Square Funds. And uh, our, our investors, of which uh, the employees of Pershing are the largest, we own about 23% of the Pershing Square Funds, are indirectly investing. Uh, and uh, we set up an alignment that was you know, very appealing to investors. so we created the most investor friendly spec in the world, and we had an enormous reception that gave us the ability to do very large scale. We now have a five billion dollar equity check, if you will, that is uh, going to be trading you know, in an hour or so on the New York Stock Exchange as the ability to issue securities and we can our goal yep. is to buy a minority interest in a business, and what I mean by that is we 're going to merge with someone we 're going to take them public, our shareholders will own. Twenty percent, twenty-five percent, thirty percent of the company. We believe we can make an advantage deal for our shareholders. Well, really, creating a great opportunity for a company to accelerate its growth, uh, deleverage balance sheet, maybe you know, provide capital for investors uh, seeking to an exit. Um, So we think it's a a great structure, and we've had a wonderful reception. uh, Bill,
2: why would it, Bill? If if I'm a company out there, and, and by the way, big companies have been speculated about everything from uh, Michael Bloomberg's company to Airbnb as a potential target for for your SPAC. If I was one of those companies, why would I prefer to go public via this route as opposed to going public through the IPO route?
1: Sure, so imagine you're Airbnb uh, and you've got you know, however many employees waiting for that one day that you're, you're gonna go public. And then one day employees learn that there's been a confidential filing of an IPO prospectus. The next day, they, you know everyone on the, in the company gets a phone call from a financial advisor giving them advice about how to exercise their stock options early, getting calls from real estate brokers, you should buy this home, and everyone starts focusing on things that have nothing to do with running the core business, and Airbnb is going through, I would say, a challenging time because of the crisis. It's about six weeks later that, um, and, and by the way, the press, you guys, start calling around to all the current employees and former employees to try to get a story. Then uh, about six weeks later, if they're lucky, they file a revised prospectus, having received some comments uh, from the SEC. And now you see you know, three years of financial data, all kinds of commentary. And if you look at what happened to WeWork when the, you know, both some combination of investors and the media got a hold of the prospectus, it ultimately uh, destroyed the company. Uh, and you know, it's a very challenging time for business to be under that kind of a microscope. And you're not allowed to respond to the media because under the SEC rules, you can't. And then, you know, uh, a few weeks later, they file another prospectus, and eventually they start a roadshow. And uh, they go on a roadshow, and they fly around the world meeting with a million investors. And it's not until the last day of the roadshow that they know how much capital they're going to raise, at what price they're going to raise it, and even whether or not the deal gets done. And if, you know, the U.S. Gov- you know, if the, uh, US government decides to break ranks with, uh, right. with China and the market's down, whatever or Trump tweets something, or Biden is ahead or behind in the polls, you know, whatever the issues are. And we think the next, you know, six to nine months are a very treacherous time. And the CEO and the board has to make a decision. Do we go public? You know, I know the underwriters told us we could raise 3 billion probably, but you know, it looks like we can only raise a billion and the price is 24 instead of 36. You know, do we do go forward with a bad IPO? Do we pull the deal? And you create this period of uncertainty and distraction for your employees. Compare that with us, right? We sit down with the CEO of Airbnb, we do uh, come to an agreement on the value of the company. Uh, we buy only a minority interest in the business, so they're not afraid to leave a little money on the table. We do deep due diligence into the company. We then announce a transaction with the company. We've committed a billion, a billion and a half dollars of our own capital, and we give every investor, you know, it, it, we have an instantaneous IPO with some of the you know most important investors in the world. I mean, one of the things we did Bill, in our radio, Bill, let me Sure.
2: But Bill, let me just ask you a question, which is as somebody and you've talked about the need for transparency when you've shorted companies. Uh, historically, you've talked about uh, how healthy it is for there to be more transparency. Isn't the IPO process unto itself? And we can take out the incentive structure that you've built into your uh, SPAC, but the other SPACs don't, are not built this way. Wouldn't you argue that the IPO structure is healthy? It actually creates that transparency when a WeWork doesn't go public. It doesn't go public for a reason because Investors were actually able to look into the books and raise real questions that are much harder to ask in the context of a SPAC?
1: Sure. So, investors don't actually get to look into the books, if you will. They get a prospectus, it's got detailed information in it. That's the only document they have in order to make a decision. And by the way, in our case, they get the same thing. The difference is they get a lead investor like us. We're committing a billion, a billion and a half, possibly more of our. Own capital, uh, we will have the benefit of inside information. We'll have the benefit of doing a deep due diligence into the company. We'll then put together a, what, what is called, you know, basically a merger proxy uh, with, with similar and actually you can have more extensive information, including projections about the business uh, that we provide to investors. And every investor in the U.S. SPAC has a full right to redeem. Meaning, if if you don't like the deal, you get your money back with interest. So, um, you know, the idea of a lead investor. You know, looking for throughout the world to find the highest quality, best business on the best terms, negotiating a transaction, committing capital, and only then do investors get presented with the detailed information they need to make a decision and they have a full opt-out. The typical process, IPO has announced, you know, several days, it's a scramble, investors are competing for allocations, they don't really have time to do the kind of due diligence that is done in the SPAC process, where there's probably, you know, at least 45 days between the mailing of that document to all the investors right. – before they have to make a decision about investing in companies. So I think it's actually a much better process. It's much better for the issuer and it's much better for the shareholder because they get to make a thoughtful decision that's not rushed by the typical IPO process.
2: Right? Uh, Bill, you know, the last time, you know, I just want to pivot for a moment. The last time you were on this network uh, back, it was March 18th. You had a very dire warning about where the coronavirus was taking this country and business uh, specifically uh, in this country. And I just want to I just want to play that segment for a second.
1: Hell is coming. okay? And I I felt, you know, it's really I've never had this experience before in my life. The closest I had was the financial crisis where I'm saying, you know, things are coming, bad stuff's coming. Um, But this was a, a feeling like I've never had. Like there's a tsunami coming, right? The tsunami's coming and you feel it in the air.
2: Bill, uh, you have been uh, both right and wrong uh, with that call. Uh, but I, I wanted to get your thoughts on, on the markets today. But I also, given the critique then uh, about the fact that you were short, uh, and I know you had been public that you were short prior to coming on the air then, uh, I also just want to understand your own positions today. Uh, because when people say, ah, Bill's going to be talking his book, I think we should we, we should all have that transparency to know where you're coming from today.
1: Sure. But let me just go back to, you know, again, that was a 28 minute segment and that was about a 15 second piece of it. And I want to remind people the message. And I encourage anyone to go watch it, which is, I said, look, we're at a fork in the road. Uh, we haven't shut at that point, by the way, we hadn't shut one state uh, in the country. Right. It's March 18th where, you know you see the compounding of the growth of the virus. And I said, look, one path is we do nothing. And if we do nothing, hell is coming. But I'm bullish, I'm buying stocks. Why? Because I believe the the president, the government is gonna shut down the country. And the the answer is we did something in the middle, which is it wasn't what we were recommending was a 30 day hard shutdown of the country, you know, statewide, right? Every Every state in the country. And then a careful reopening, if you go back and watch, you know, what I said. Had we done that, okay, we would, not, we would be in a much better position, you know, unfortunately, than we are now. We're somewhere in the middle. And actually, the day after my remarks, California shut down the state. And the next day, New York shut down the state. And we had a state-by-state, uh, what I would call sloppy shutdown. And we've had a state-by-state sloppy opening. And you know, the, the implications are more people have died. You know, the economy's in a worse place than it would have been had we sort of taken the pain and rip the Band-Aid off, and that was my message. Now, CNBC played that 15-second se- segment, and uh, you know, uh, so number one, at the time of the broadcast, I had gone bullish. Uh, we've actually you know, been very public about this. On March 12th, we, be- we decided to completely unwind all of our hedges, and we took that capital, and we had invested over $2 billion more in the market uh, by the time uh, I had done that segment. And we completed taking off our. But just just to clarify,
2: (laughs) you had not you had not closed, Bill. Just to clarify, you had not closed out your shorts at that point, though completely.
1: We had uh, we were unwinding our. We were first of all massively long the market, right? So we were eighty five percent invested in stocks prior to with a hedge on. Okay, on March twelfth, we decided to take the hedge off, uh, and we had uh, you know liquidated a billion three of the hedge. And we invested $2 billion in the stock market in the six days before that interview. So, we were at $3.3 billion more long than we were on March 12th, which you know, took us to you know, more than 100% invested. So, we were absolutely bullish. And in fact, if, again, watch the segment and my tweet about 20 minutes later, making it very, very clear, we're buying Hilton, we're buying Restaurant Friends, we're buying Chipotle, you know every stock that we are you know able to buy other than stocks around on the board. And by the way, it was the low that day. If you go back and look, it was the low for Hilton. It was the low for restaurant brands. It was the low for, I think, Starbucks. You know, so we were, you know, making a very bullish call at the time.
0: Just to clarify that position, because I want to, uh, I think that people will listen to that and think, oh, well, he he had unwound the shorts. He went on the air, said hell is coming, and then plowed that money back into the markets after he made that comment that hell is coming. But to be clear, you had actually unwound those shorts and put that money directly in prior to going on the air with the dire forecast
1: that's that's absolutely correct by the way my 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 comments were not dire what i said was if we do nothing things are going to be dire hell is coming but i don't believe we're going to do nothing i don't think we have an alternative i think the president is going to shut down the country and my recommendation was for a hard shutdown and again we're in america we're you know i guess we're a federal system um, and you know, states were allowed to make their own decisions, and that led to a, a slow, extended shutdown, what I call a sloppy shutdown. And the result is we've had a middle case outcome. But my bullish call on markets was entirely correct. We were $3.3 billion more long on March 18th than we were on March 12th. We had made the decision to go long, and actually I meant to deliver a very bullish message. And if you look at my contemporaneous treats, and if, if, if you guys, instead of talking about the hell is coming part of my interview which you guys ran all day and all night i understand why some people might have been confused by that message look at the bullish message i made which is i'm buying stocks right now okay and by the way it was the low point for all the stocks in our portfolio that day because some people actually listened to what i said on cnbc and bought hilton and bought lowe's and bought restaurant brands and bought starbucks uh, and bought you know the companies that we talked about uh, on air Uh, and if you had listened to my act what i actually said People have done very well, but we had absolutely turned bullish uh, and, we had, you know, were very long going into uh, the, the segment on, on the 18th.
4: When I hear that hell is coming and I admit it was only the 15 second snippet that we had, but looking at it, and the market did obviously it spiked down 38 percent, but came back very quickly. So I'm not convinced that that was the right forecasts for what, and here we're going to get into again, 150,000 deaths is hell. And, and, and for the families affected and for people that, you know, have, have lost loved ones, you know, young and old, it is hell. But just in terms of the way the market ha- has bounced back, it almost looked like that was an aberration and that there was too much pessimism about what was going to happen in the markets at that point. You're saying now that you were bullish, but were you surprised at how quickly the market has rebounded to where we're at new highs in the NASDAQ. And I know there's stimulus and everything else, but it doesn't look like hell to me. Hell never really came in terms of the markets.
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, know, the markets are a representation of the most successful, the largest, the best capitalized, the most dominant companies in the world. And unfortunately, the markets don't, there isn't a market for the private family owned business right? And that market's down 80, 90, in some cases, 100%. You know, think about the closed restaurants, think about the gyms, think about the bars, okay? You know, so I think if you live life using the S&P 500 as your reference point for how everyone's doing, you're leaving out a meaningful percentage uh, of the country. And there are a lot of people that are suffering and, you know, not, you know, suffering economically. And there are, are unfortunately, people who are suffering, uh, dying, and and more are going to die. I mean, 150,000, unfortunately, is not, You know, it's not the maximum. We're going to lose more. And the sooner, by the way, the sooner that we take, again, the approach here was a rip the band aid approach. Shut down the entire country for 30 days. Okay, I know it's tough. Okay, stay home. You know, I was talking about what I called an extended spring break. And if we do that, the economy can recover very quickly and we can be, you know, back to a somewhat normal life for a period of time until there is a vaccine. We did instead, what we did instead was a gradual rolling right. shutdown where each state got to make make its own decision. And each state has made its own decision about reopening. Right. Some states have reopened too quickly, and they're unfortunately suffering the consequences. Bill, we would have never gotten
4: to zero in, in, in terms of cases, and we try to flatten the curve so the health care system doesn't get overwhelmed. But it was always going to, at some point, have burns and and places around the, the country where it's still going to be present, obviously, until... Uh, there's a vaccine you're saying that the way that it was played by the media the 15 second clip is unfair because you were bullish but can you see how i mean three days later that was i think uh that was a wednesday we bottomed on a monday a lot of people that weren't fortunate enough to be short going into that uh essentially sold they could have sold based on those horrific forecasts and, and probably bottomed out the market and, and haven't been able to recoup 40 of, percent of whatever it is that the market has come back. You're, you're saying that that, that, you're, that wasn't your intention and it's not your fault. It's, way it was put, it's by playing that 15 second clip. To
1: the Unfortunately, experience. I would say I really blame CNBC. It took 15 seconds of my interview and they ran around scaring people because it was good television. And I hate to be in your in your face for this, but that's exactly what happened. I gave a very bullish message. I said I was buying stocks, which I literally was doing on the same day. I tweeted the same thing, and then you guys kept playing the hell is coming piece. I said, look, okay, we're at a fork in in the road, okay? One path is death and destruction, and we're heading down that path if we don't shut down the country. But if we shut down the country, okay, we can be like Hong Kong, which is actually going back to a more normal existence, right? That was my recommendation, you know, to the government. Okay, that was my recommendation. And, you know, uh, why did the market bottom because California shut down the day after my interview, because New York state shut down this two days right. after my interview. And people said, okay, now there's actually, there's gonna be end to this, okay? The market bottomed because states started taking actions that would lead to the end to the virus. The reason why the stock market was down 6.5% before I even went on TV that day, okay, is because the government wasn't taking the virus seriously enough. And the states took it into their hands to shut down the states. and once. You know, Bill. investors understood a shutdown would lead to, a, you know, killing off the virus and we can return to a normal existence. The markets recovered. It had nothing to do with my remarks. Bill. It had to do with actions. So, so
2: given where we are today uh, with now COVID cases, uh, you know, what seems like a record surge. Are you bullish today? Are you bearish today? And let me also ask you specifically about your positions, not just your thoughts, but your positions so that we don't get into a thing where viewers or others are saying that you're saying one thing and doing something else?
1: Yeah, let let me be super clear. You know, we are long-term bullish on America. We are long-term bullish on the markets. We continue to own, you know, the same positions we owned in Hilton, Starbucks, Lowe's, restaurant brands. We invested, you know, subsequent in the year, $500 billion in a real estate development company with major operations in Houston. Obviously, we are bullish uh, on the country, Um, but I would say I am cautious on markets over the next period of time, and uh, we we have today a, a you know a short position in a high yield index. Uh, we are bearish on highly levered companies to some extent. I view that as a, a hedge. I don't know whether we make money on it or not, uh, but the highly levered businesses will struggle because it's going to take time for the economy to reopen. Um, but we are about eighty uh, percent. We've about twenty percent cash in our publicly traded entity, and we are approximately 98% long. So the, the entity itself is leveraged. So the cash offsets the debts. So we're effectively 100% long. And we have a short position in the high yield credit index, which is a, comp, a composite of, Bill. you know, with, with junk credits.
0: Do you, do you foresee a wave of bankruptcies, Bill? And do you not believe that the Fed will be there to backstop those companies, the high yield companies that you're short right now?
1: Yes, I, I don't think the Fed is going to bail out uh, companies that have too much debt. Uh, and it's not clear to me, I, I view it uh, being short high yield credit as a, a good hedge. Uh, I don't know whether it pays off or not. Uh, I think the defaults cover the cost of carry unless really bad things happen. Uh, and you know, if there was a vaccine soon, which you know, we hope there is, I think things could snap back pretty quickly. Uh, but a levered energy company, what's happened in the energy markets You you see multiple bankruptcies, companies re-equitize, and they become much more competitive against competitors that have debt, and it leads to more bankruptcies. And by the way, I don't think bankruptcy is a bad thing for many businesses. You know, know, a bankrupt company doesn't have to go fire all of its people, particularly a large cap, large enterprise value bankrupt company. What happens is, you know, the, the equity holders lose their investment, the creditors convert their investment into equity, and you have a less levered company that's in a better position to compete that can continue to operate, continue to hire people. Um, you know, that's actually a pretty healthy process. I think lending money to highly levered companies, you know, only ends in teeters.
4: Bill, so. um, right now, I think we have more cases in per day than than when you said that, that hell was coming. And I think there's much less likelihood that Texas or a lot of these hot spots are probably not gonna do anywhere close to what you thought needed to be done last time so why isn't hell coming this time considering the virus is probably as prevalent as it was back then or is it because you think a vaccine is near term
1: because again a lot of states uh, like new york uh, you know took drastic action Yeah, but now that, they're
4: not taking texas california all these places are not going to shut down and there's more cases coming now than there were when you said hell is coming last time so why isn't hell okay. coming this time
1: hold on joe let's be super clear OK, I said, if we do nothing, OK, well, we'll probably not we do anything. if we do nothing, OK, and we have 18 months of uh, you know, the virus running roughshod across the country, hell is coming. OK, if we take aggressive action, we can end this quickly. We're, right now, we're somewhere in the middle. OK, so I, my expectation is things don't get meaningfully better until the second half of 2021. And if Pfizer's vaccine works or AstraZeneca's vaccines works and it can be deployed in a reasonable period of time, we're going to be a much better place. And the sooner that everyone in America wears a mask when they're in a public place, okay, the more quickly the economy is going to recover, the more quickly people can go back to normal existence. And it's not a big deal to wear a mask. It really isn't. It's not a political statement, okay. It's about protecting other people. And if everyone in Houston, uh, you know, or Dallas or other parts of Texas wear a mask, uh, then a lot more people are going to be safe. The economy is going to recover. The market's going to go higher. You know, the longer people, just say, hey, I, you know, uh, Liberty, America. You know, I don't want to cover my mouth. You know, the more we're going to be in a mess. And uh, so I don't, I don't know what's going to happen over the next yeah. you know, six or six or twelve months. I think we're we're having a, as I say, a sloppy reopening in the country. We're going to, you know, once uh, you know Miami is completely overwhelmed, you know, South Florida is going to have to be shut down, or many, many, you know, tens of thousands of people are going to die. And so, you know, governors, mayors are going to are going to take their own actions. And if we had a coordinated uh, federal action at the very beginning, we could have avoided a lot of this.
2: Let me ask you another question about the markets, which is, um, you know, you're invested in in Starbucks and Chipotle, which is, by the way, is going to be reporting after the bell today. So I I may want to get your thoughts on that uh, and and so many others. But we haven't talked about the high flyers, the big tech companies. And I wanted to get your thoughts there. Have you invested in any of the big tech companies that have been leading uh, the Amazons of the world and, and Facebooks and Googles and, and others uh, and, or a Tesla, for example. What do you think of that right now?
1: So, look, there, what a crisis does is it advantages some businesses and harms others. And, you know, Amazon, you know, I think I even mentioned it in my interview on the 18th, I think is an enormous beneficiary. And we scrambled to do the work on Amazon and, you know, are bad for, for missing. Uh, so we don't own any of the great high-flying tech companies. Uh, you know whether or not they justify their valuations is a is a more complicated analysis and and it takes time. But you know everyone who's sitting home that am ordered from Amazon for the first time, you know becomes a lo- you know long term customer and, and this has been an enormous you know, they've been an enormous beneficiary. I actually bought a Tesla. Um, it's a great car. Uh, you know I, I have some issues with it and, and I'm going to send Elon a note as to what what he can do better. But it's uh, there's a reason why you know you, you compare a Tesla to a you know, traditional, you know, uh, gasoline car—it's—it's it's the future, and that's why, you know, people, you know, believe they're going to take huge market share. Um, but you know, the current valuation—you have to believe a lot of very good things in order to justify it. And and we like to own things where we don't have to be so visionary about the future cash flows um, to justify buying a business.
2: But you're not shorting, for example, the big tech companies when you look at a no, Tesla. we're not. No, we're
1: not shorting any stocks. We're obviously bullish on America, owning restaurant companies, hotel companies, real estate development companies. You know, These are a bet that the country is gonna recover. Let me be super clear. I'm very bullish on America. You know, we're gonna go through a very uncertain time over the six to nine months uh, from now, right? We've got a you know, highly contested presidential election. Um, whether it's the second term of President Trump or the first Biden term, um, it's gonna create uncertainty in the world. Right. You know, the fact that we're not going to have a vaccine, probably stick one second to the to the first quarter, just getting back to what we wanted to talk about today. That's why having a cash shell where someone can instantaneously raise $5 billion and be in an offensive position in accelerating the growth of their business or deleveraging their company is a really good opportunity. It's that uncertainty that creates the opportunity for what we're calling Pershing Square Tontine Holdings. So we're looking forward to watching a trade in the market and, uh, and partner with our shareholders in accomplishing a great outcome.
2: Right. Okay. Uh, Bill Ackman, thank you so very much for joining us this morning. Um, it was a, a pleasure to talk to you. Squawk
0: SquawkPod will be right back.
4: We could try to explain what it's like to get your work done on a John Deere mower, compact tractor, or Gator XUV. But to really understand the feeling, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at JohnDeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. Melissa, thanks. Andrew, thanks. It, it, did we read Tolstoy? Did anyone read it? it? It was today's show like War and Peace. I laughed, I cried, four star. I mean, three <laughs> hours ago sounds like All it was it. years ago, doesn't it?
0: And that's Squawk Pod for today. Careful listeners may have noticed that we teased United CEO Scott Kirby in today's pod. Because we give you the best moments of our three-hour morning show and that show is live, sometimes things happen that we don't expect. Andrew, Joe and Melissa's conversation with Bill Ackman was so interesting that we brought you that entire interview today. You will hear all about United Airlines and this unusual moment in aviation history tomorrow. Really.
1: Every two to three minutes, the air in an airplane is being refreshed. Um, it really is a unique environment, unlike anything you see any anywhere else. I mean, it's one of the safest environments that you can be. In.
0: Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern, subscribe to Squawk Pod, and we'll meet you back here tomorrow.